You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Dr. Josh Storrs Hall is an independent scientist and author. His research focus is in AI and machine ethics. His latest book in press, Prometheus 2007, is Beyond AI, Creating the Conscience of the Machine. Thank you for joining me, Josh. Hi, thanks for having me. Josh, your presentation today is going to focus on something that comes straight out of science fiction, the three laws of robotics. Tell us why you chose to take that focus. Well, that's really sort of the the whole idea of the conference, is to understand how we're going to build machines that we can trust, that we'll be better off having built, and that we will find useful and helpful and people don't need to worry about. And people have been thinking about this since Isaac Asimov first started writing his science fiction stories back in the, I believe it was in the 30s. You talk about different kinds of moral sensibilities, and I'm really interested in this in this notion of human moral sensibilities versus text moral sensibilities. Could you explain the difference between the two and what each one is? Well, in my book, I have a, a distinction that I make that I call formalist float. The basic notion of this is simply that when you describe something in words or in logical symbols or, or math or something, you are necessarily papering over some of the, the distinctions that actually happen in the real world. And that the, when, you, when you write down a, a code of laws in words, there are always people who will come and find loopholes. And when you try and cover those loopholes, your legal code just gets bigger and, and, and more complex and less understandable. And the, when, you, when you actually want to have laws that, that, that people understand and actually intend to obey, they should really be simple. I think probably the best, the best case of a law like that is just a line painted down the middle of the road. Because you're driving on your side and the other person's driving on his side, and you really don't want to be on the other side and, and run into him. And so all the, all the line does is tell you where's a good spot not to cross over so that he'll know that and, and not cross over into your side too. If you, uh, if you try to, to do this in, in, in just plain words, you get these, these, these vast legal codes that, that nobody's ever even read, um, like you know the one we notionally live under. But in fact, your notions of, of, of what the law is that, that you obey is nothing like the, the millions, literally, of, of, uh, of words that are in the, uh, in the U.S. Code or the, or the California Code. Uh, it's, a, it's part of your model of the world in your mind, but it's not couched in words that way. Uh, it, it's built of whatever basic underlying structures you actually use to understand the world and um, discovering how the structures work and, and, and what they really are is one of the, the, the key uh, open problems in artificial intelligence, um, the sort of thing that we need to be able to make any machine uh, clueful, if you will, about anything. Could you talk a little bit about this conference and being here at the Singularity Summit? It's a really unusual uh, collection of people and presentations. What do you think ha creates this interest here and now? Um, well, I think 
For one thing, there really is uh, evidence that AI is picking up some steam. If you look at what robots can do nowadays and what non-robotic computer systems that are doing smart things like Google are doing, you'll see that uh, it's a reasonable projection that within the next decade or two, we're likely to have machines noticeably smarter than the ones that we have now. And so it, it's a, it seems to be a sign of the times that, that, that something really is getting up ahead of steam and, and is about to happen. The other thing is that there's just a lot of people, uh, especially in this area, who are interested in that kind of thing. There's some sense of uh, the right people in the right place at the right time. One thing that I found kind of interesting is, is thinking about if the three laws won't cut it and they can't be easily implemented because of the chaos of the marketplace, everybody's going to want to have their own three laws. Could you talk about the part that the commercialism and capitalism and the competition between companies plays in the development of artificial intelligence? Yeah, well, that's, that's actually one thing that, that um, I think Asimov got wrong. He, he, he had this notion that you could build robots with this specific set of, of laws, and they would all thereby, thereby be safe. Um, but, of course, that, that's not going to happen because, as you so cogently observe, the uh, robots are going to come from lots of different sources, lots of different countries. They're going to be built for corporations. They're going to be built for the military. Um, and there's just no chance that they'll all come with the same set of built-in uh, laws, even if Eliezer manages to discover exactly what the right set is. So you have to, when you're, when you're designing your, your robots, you have to make use of our best understanding of um, how uh, a moral robot can live in a, a a non-moral world, uh, and luckily uh, we do have some understanding of that because this is how our morals managed to evolve out of the uh, the jungle, so to speak, in the first place. And there there are some uh, very nice results in in things like evolutionary game theory uh, that show that if you have a sort of a code of niceness uh, and on. on some very difficult to quantify scale that the individuals with the, the slightly nicer version of it can can get together and prosper in the face of a, a population that's slightly not as nice, forming an upward evolutionary pressure. And so uh, we, we see this not only in, in the actual uh, computer experiments of the game theorists, but, but in um, the evolution of human societies as well. I wonder if you could comment on what I would call the um, creating a sustainable ecosystem of the mind. A as we introduce artificial intelligences, uh, there's going to be, uh, I would presume, some competition in just in terms of different forms of, of cognition and in, in intellection. Well, yes, this is, this is the, the, the same basic uh, issue where you have all kinds of different machines with different strategies and, and, and different abilities, and there's going to be competition. Even if it's not direct physical competition, there's going to be mimetic competition where um, the different designs are, are fighting to be considered the most useful ones and therefore um, uh, the most copied ones. And um, so it, it is in that evolutionary dynamic that we have to do our designs for moral machines. Uh, it's, it's a bit complicated to get into all the, all the details of how you would go about doing that, but that's the general 
principle that we have to look at. How will we identify whether our machines are actually moral or not? There's no real guarantee, um, but I think that one of the things that we have spent a lot of time doing as humans for uh, tens of thousands of years is looking at each other and uh, applying whatever intelligence we do have to the problem of uh, whether various other individuals were moral or not. And so I think that's a good start. I think that there's an awful lot more that you can take from just the stuff your mother taught you when you were growing up to understand how we should interact with, with these machines, that they're not going to be all that much different from people, especially in the, in the early days. And so we're going to be able to use many of the same criteria with the added help that we're going to be able to look on their insides because we, we actually built them and, and know in, some, in, in many cases where it would be difficult with a person whether they're trying to fool us or not. When the machines, as we're told by the, sing the, the very theory of the singularity, are able to improve themselves to the point where we can no longer understand their inner workings, what will we do then? Well, as uh, both the speaker this, this morning pointed out, we're going to be changing ourselves as well. And so um, that it won't be just the same old us. But the other thing is that uh, it's, it's not completely clear that there's a a sort of a threshold of superintelligence that, that you hit and you're suddenly not understandable to, to anybody. In fact, uh, some people understand other people better than other people understand some other people. And uh, so there's always degrees of this. And I think that the, especially given the fact that by presumption we will have built these things, we'll have, at least in the beginning, a better understanding of, of how they work uh, than we do of each other. And so if they, if they continue getting faster and uh, more complex, well, we already live in a fast, complex world. And I think one of the, the most obvious tasks to put the new minds of the future uh, to work at is the task of making sense of it all and explaining it to us. One thing that, that interests me is that the approach to artificial intelligence is so scattered, and, and it seems like it's an enormously important project. At least as important as going out into space, but there's no, like, monolithic moon project, get us to the moon project. And I wonder if you care to comment on the implications of... Some of the people here seem to think we should approach the singularity as a monolithic. We all figure it out and work together on one kind of idea. Well, I, I tend to use the analogy of uh, the ability to, uh, the, the discovery of, of, of a powered heavier-than-air flight by people like the Wright brothers. Um, there was actually quite a, uh, a wide variety of approaches through the, the 1890s and the, and the, uh, the 1900s. And the, the Wright brothers had, had sort of one more key than, than the next people, but there were quite a few projects that, that might well have succeeded. And um, I think that what AI needs right now, as well as the, the, the sort of support that, that it gets from robotics and, and so forth in the, in the academic and commercial world, is simply a lot of ideas. There's no really firm evidence that you need more than a small group of, of really bright people looking at uh, the problem. It, it's, it's 
almost more like a math problem than it is a, a big engineering problem. And so um, I think that having a thousand flowers bloom is probably the best way to approach it. The artificial intelligence is something that existed for a long time in science fiction before it existed in science. Uh, could you talk about the relationship between science fiction and science and how it influences your work as a scientist and how um, it influences uh, the development in the community as well? Because many of the people who work on this stuff are great science fiction fans. Well, that's absolutely true, uh, and, and especially in, in my work as a, a futurist. Um, uh, most, I would say, of the, of the the big ideas have, have really actually come from the, the science fiction writers who were doing them well before it was uh, close enough to reality that, that somebody who was a serious quote-unquote futurist could, could get away with talking about them. So you had Isaac Asimov as a, as a young teenager writing science fiction in the, in the 30s talking about these robots um, and coming up with some of the uh, ideas that are still uh, a central part of the debate uh, over how we should build them to be safe and so forth. And we had, we had Mary Shelley writing about Frankenstein you know, as, a, as a young girl. Um, and um, a, a huge amount of the, uh, of the basic concepts that we, that we used to think about um, these possibilities and, and possible problems um, did, in fact, come from the, the science fiction writers. So I'm, I'm very proud to uh, uh, claim to be a major science fiction fan. Well, tell us what science fiction writers you're reading now. Oh, let's see. Um, uh, John Scalzi, Greg Egan is a is a, a very good source of uh, remarkable new um, ideas. Charles Strauss uh, is another one. Um, right off the top of my head, are the new ones that that uh, I read now, those are them. The top of the heap, actually. I like all those guys myself. Um, could you talk a little bit about what I would guess call the folklore of, of artificial intelligence? Oh, well, there, there, there's certainly some, some urban legends. One of them that, that, that comes up almost every time somebody talks about this stuff is uh, the one about how um, Marvin Minsky thought that the vision problem was so simple that he put an undergraduate to do it for a summer. And if you hear Marvin Minsky talk about this, he, he, what, he, what he now does is point out who it was that he put on the problem um, as if, you know, it was obvious that's exactly what he should have done. But, but in fact, I think he's improving the, uh, the story a little bit um, because what, what had actually happened was that they were trying to do something uh, considerably more constrained than the, quote, vision problem. Uh, they were trying to uh, program a robot arm, which they already had and had already programmed, um, to look at a stack of blocks and build another stack of blocks in the same order. Uh, which they called the, the copy demo. Um, and that was the actual project that they, they put this kid on. And not only uh, uh, was it successful, it, it, it took longer than they thought. It took the summer and the next year, but it, but it was successful. So it, you know, that, that's the sort of thing that, that grows up as these, these ur- urban legends and, and AI. One, one thing that um, is of interest that I that I haven't really heard of as a legend, but that I discovered when I was writing my um, uh, my recent book, which is out by the way, it's not just in, in press, um, is um, that back in the 50s, everybody sort of assumed that the the science of mind that was going to be used to build these robots and intelligent machines and so forth was cybernetics, 
I mean, that was, uh, you know, college uh, universities had uh, cybernetics programs and, and so forth. They, in, in most cases where there was no such thing as a computer science program, but they had cybernetics. And cybernetics was uh, uh, very sophisticated and densely mathematical and, and, and all this sort of stuff. Um, and then along comes the, the computer, and then there's artificial intelligence, and, uh, and it always struck me as being odd why they never seem to talk to each other. Um, and you, you know, cybernetics uh, sort of is now thought of as, a, as, an, as an old-fashioned word and, and, and um, it, that didn't pan out or something. And um, it turns out that not only um, was there a, a sort of intellectual uh, disconnect between the, the two schools of thought, but that there was a, um, a really almost soap opera-like set of personality conflicts um, and, and, and feud uh, between the principles of, of AI and, and of cybernetics going on back there. If you go back and um, uh, you uh, dig into these, uh, the personalities and, and, and the stories, you find that uh, there's some stuff that you didn't expect that you wouldn't have expected to have anything to do with it if you didn't realize that, that scientists were actually real people with um, real sometimes very crazy personalities. Uh, We've been speaking with uh, Dr. Josh Storrs Hall. His new book is Beyond AI, Creating the Conscience of the Machine. Thank you for joining me. You're welcome. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.